Hello and welcome to this podcast summary of the joint board meeting held between the IASB and the FASB uh, between the 12th and the 14th of June 2012 in London. Uh, I'm joined today by Steve Cooper, member of the IASB, Alan Teixeira, Senior Director of Technical Activities, and Sue Lloyd, also Senior Director of Technical Activities. Uh, let's go straight into it. Um, Steve, perhaps we could start with you. There was uh, quite a big discussion on leases this week. Well, it's not just this week, Mark. It's um, been going on for months, uh, many will say years. Uh, and this is to do with the uh, lessee accounting method in particular and uh, how we should recognise the expense uh, in the income statement. Um, I'm sure everybody's aware that uh, the board's been discussing two approaches. Uh, one from the 2010 exposure draft, uh, which would treat leases like a uh, any other asset and, and a liability. The other one, uh, a modification where the liability would be accounted for in the same way, but we would end up with a straight line expense, uh, the so-called straight line approach. And the bulls have been discussing this for several months in education sessions, outreach and the like, and, and this meeting was uh, the time when we uh, came to take a decision. The boards decided that uh, we should look at leases in two ways, that, that some leases should be accounted for in accordance with the method in the original exposure draft and that some leases should be accounted for on a straight line basis. We decided that the principle to distinguish between the two different types of leases is whether the lessee acquires or consumes more than an insignificant portion of the underlying asset over the lease term. But that principle uh, should be supplemented by a practical expedient focusing upon the nature of the underlying asset. So uh, the presumption would be that leases of property should be accounted for using a straight line basis unless uh, there was evidence to the contrary and that would include that the lease term could be for a major part of the economic life of the underlying asset or that the present value of the fixed lease payments accounts for substantially all of the fair value of the underlying asset. So in those two cases then you would flip and you would account for it using the ED approach. Uh, otherwise, property would be accounted for using the straight line method. And then for leases of other than property, so planted equipment essentially, uh, you would account for that on the basis of the original exposure draft, uh, but uh, unless there were circumstances where the lease term was an insignificant portion of the underlying, uh, the useful life of the underlying asset, or the present value of the fixed payments were insignificant relative to the fair value of the underlying asset. So it provides a very clear distinction between um, property and equipment, but, but not making it a hard and fast rule that you should distinguish on that. There's a principle underlying it, and the property and equipment is, is essentially uh, sort of guidelines. Uh, but it does accord with a lot of the feedback that we received recently in our outreach activities where many of the uh, those constituents involved in property leasing were very um, adamant that the straight line approach was most appropriate and many that were involved in equipment leasing uh, disagreed and, and agreed with the original exposure draft. So I think we found uh, a good solution based around an underlying principle that we think would be practical to implement and that uh, was, was certainly consistent with a lot of the feedback that we received. So uh, in addition, we went, then went on to talk about lessor accounting. Uh, clearly the decision for lessees could have implications for lessors and the board was asked whether they wanted to retain their tentative decisions in this area or modify it to take into account uh, the, the decisions we made on lessee accounting. We decided that we would make a change 
and that we would align the split between the different lessor accounting methods with that use for lessees. The only difference is that for the lessor approach, uh, we have the receivable residual approach and then an operating lease accounting approach, but that uh, though that split should then align with the split that we have uh, for the lessee. So the receivable and residual approach would align with the uh, original uh, 2010 leases exposure draft approach for lessee accounting and that the operating lease accounting approach for lessors would align with the straight line method for the lessee accounting. Okay, and, and move to an exposure draft uh, fairly soon, fourth quarter I believe? Yeah, fourth quarter of 2012 is what we're targeting. Excellent, okay, good. Um, Sue, perhaps we could stay with you then on financial instruments, classification and measurement. Uh, what were the discussions this week? Okay, uh, thanks Mark. Um, at the joint meeting uh, this week we talked about classification and measurement, really two relatively um, short discussions on relatively narrow issues. Uh, we're getting close to the end of the classification and measurement joint deliberations now. The first thing that we did was really to go back and confirm a um, decision that's really been implicit in a number of the decisions the boards have already made this year, and that was to confirm which types of debt investments would be eligible for the fair value OCI category that the ISB agreed to introduce into their model at last month's meeting, and that the FASB already had in their tentative model. And the boards agreed uh, this week that in order for a debt investment to be measured at fair value through OCI, not only should the instrument be managed um, within a business model where instruments are held both to collect um, the contractual cash flows and to sell some investments, but also those debt investments to be eligible, mu eligible must be fairly simple debt instruments. So they must satisfy this contractual cash flow characteristics tests that the boards have talked about um, previously, which is essentially meeting the principal and interest test that's already in IFRS 9, um, subject to some clarifications that we've been discussing. So really only simple debt instruments would be eligible for fair value through OCI. Complex debt instruments, irrespective of business model, would be measured at fair value through P&L. The second discussion was about um, the fair value option um, that would be included in the classification and measurement model. And the discussions here by the two boards were slightly different given the different um, fair value options we already have in our literature. Um, and I'll focus just on the ISB part of the discussion. Essentially all that the ISB did here was to confirm that if you have a debt investment, a simple debt investment that would be eligible to be measured at fair value through OCI because of its business model, if by measuring that debt investment at fair value through P&L you would eliminate or significantly reduce an accounting mismatch, then an entity would be able to make an election on an initial recognition to instead measure that debt investment at fair value through P&L. So really that just confirms that the fair value option that we already have in IFRS 9 for financial assets would be, would be available not just for debt investments that are eligible for amortised cost measurement, but also debt investments that are eligible for measurement at fair value through OCI. And that was it for classification and measurement this month. Thanks, Sue. Um, Steve, perhaps we could go back to you on insurance contracts. Yeah, there were two issues that we discussed at this meeting, uh, measuring earned premiums and then some additional work on unbundling. Uh, in terms of the, the earned premiums, this is to do with presentation. It, it has no impact on the overall measurement of net income nor the measurement of the insurance liability in the balance sheet. 
what it is, it's all about presentation and whether there should be some sort of measure of top line, a revenue type number reflecting premiums in addition to claims and other expenses shown separately, and if so, how should you measure those premiums? In the exposure draft, we had a summarized margin approach that was proposed where there wouldn't be on the face of the income statement any measure of premiums and claims, but instead it would be the margin that would be reported. It was essentially treating insurance contracts like deposits. Uh, many people respond to saying that they, they didn't agree with that and they felt that some sort of measure of uh, premiums was appropriate. Uh, we have looked at all various alternatives, written premiums, premiums due, and, uh, and now this idea of premiums earned. The board didn't express much support for premiums written and premiums due. There's a number of disadvantages with those, not least that they are inconsistent with uh, re revenue as measured under our revenue recognition proposals. So the board has been looking at an approach to calculate an earned premiums number that would be consistent with revenue recognition. This has been going on for some time in, in various sort of working uh, meetings that we've been having internally and, and with uh, some constituents that have been helping us um, uh, put together some numbers in this area. So this was the first time that the board had really discussed it uh, in, in, a, in a broad meeting. And, uh, and the board expressed some support for uh, some of the tentative proposals that the staff had put forward. Uh, we're going to take it further. Uh, this is certainly not the end of, uh, of our discussions. We're going to take it to the insurance working group, which meets in just over a week's time. Uh, and then we're also going to come back and, and further discuss this um, later in the summer. So that's uh, ongoing work in progress. In terms of unbundling, um, the board has previously made decisions about uh, unbundling of investment components, embedded derivatives, and then um, uh, service elements which are bundled within insurance contracts. And this was all to do with how that unbundling should take place and how cash flow should be attributed to the different components. So we decided um, that we would attribute cash flows to an investment component, to an unbundled investment component, an unbundled embedded derivative, by measuring these things on a standalone basis. So you would, you would measure these components as if they had been issued as a separate contract. This means that you wouldn't include any effective of cross subsidies or discounts, supplements uh, into that investment component. Then after excluding the cash flows relating to that unbundled investment component and embedded derivative, you then have to separate um, uh, what's left uh, between any potential, um, the insurance element and, and any uh, service element, any non-insurance component uh, that might be present. And, and we, we put forward uh, a basis then for doing that allocation. Essentially, it relies on uh, the proposals that we have in our uh, revenue recognition um, exposure draft, uh, and also then uh, in terms of the cash outflows, uh, an allocation based on a sort of rational, consistent way of doing that, that split. Um, so we, we put forward various um, sort of principles that would be applied in that case. So that sort of gives more flesh to decisions that we've taken previously and, and gives a, a methodology as to how this unbundling would actually be implemented in practice. Okay, thank you. Um, Sue, let's go back to you. If you could provide us with an update on investment entities. Okay, so at the joint discussion this week, the boards discussed further the investment entities or investment companies project. Um, we, we discussed two topics this week that were really both to do with 
aspects of accounting when you have a group of entities um, that includes a subsidiary that's an investment entity. <clears throat> and the first question that the boards were asked to discuss was how you should account uh, for an investment entity subsidiary when you have an investment entity parent company. Um, and the boards uh, tentatively decided at the meeting that even if an investment entity parent has a subsidiary that itself is an investment entity, that it should be required to fair value that investment entity rather than to consolidate it. That was just from the ISB's perspective a confirmation of what was in our original proposals, but for the FASB it was a change in respect of master feeder structures and fund of fund structures, which they had proposed should be consolidated in their original ED. The second question that we looked at was again a group accounting issue, and that was the roll-up question that some people have referred to it as, or, or put another way, how should a non-investment entity parent account for investments in subsidiaries that are controlled indirectly through an investment entity subsidiary. So in this situation, the investment entity subsidiary itself would measure its subsidiaries at fair value. And the question is, if that investment entity is itself controlled by a non-investment entity, should that non-investment entity also um, be subject to the exemption from consolidation? The ISB um, tentatively confirmed their proposal that these entities not retain the exception from consolidation. So that means that if a non-investment entity parent um, controls a, a subsidiary, even though it's held through an investment entity subsidiary, that um, it's required to consolidate. Um, the FASB decided the opposite, um, so it confirmed what it had proposed in its ED, that roll-up accounting should be retained. And that's, that's consistent with current US GAAP, and there was quite a few comments made at the board table noting the different regulatory environment in the US that helps support that roll-up accounting, which isn't the case for, for other jurisdictions, and we need to have a more broad international perspective. Okay, thank you. Um, the other thing that was discussed, I believe, this week, uh, a couple of reviews, one of uh, IFRS 8 operating segments, segment reporting, and uh, the IFRS for SMEs. Alan, do you want to go into some details? Yeah, these are a fairly new process for us. On the first one, if we um, the SMEs, I'll just I'll cover off. Uh, we produced an IFRS for SMEs, a special standalone standard um, that applies to small and medium-sized enterprises about three years ago. And at the time, we promised that we would uh, have a look and review that because uh, unlike our normal IFRSs, they're not being updated and, and uh, evolving over time. They, we try to keep it fairly static. So this is the first comprehensive review, and uh, the board discussed that. There's a, a document that's been put together, a request for information, we call it, and we're going to be publishing that, uh, we hope, in the next week or so um, with uh, a comment period ending around about the end of November. So that's our first chance for respondents to, to give us a sense of how well the, um, the, the standards worked, and in particular, how we update that now for changes that we made to the full IFRSs over the last three years. The second one is our first ever post-implementation review, and that's the IFRS 8, as you mentioned, operating segments. And uh, we've been developing our methodology over the last uh, couple of years with us, and um, in the board session this week, we had a look at uh, a, an, a review of the academic research that's been conducted to date on uh, operating segments and also the types of questions that we want to ask in, a, in an open consultation um, about the document. And the board uh, authorised us to put out a request for information again. Um, we're likely to do that in July, I think, is our target for getting that out. And this provides an opportunity for people to comment on 
um, on how they what they think the effect of IFRS 8 has been. Um, there'll be some questions that focus for preparers specifically, some for users as well. Um, I think one thing to to really emphasise is that this request for information is not the only mechanism we're, we're um, using to gather information. We're going to be doing some focused and targeted interviews with some prepare, some users and some preparers, for example, and we'll use that to supplement the, the general call that we put out there. Okay. Uh, perhaps we could stay with you, Alan, and do a general wrap-up of anything else that was discussed during the board meeting or, or anything coming up that we should look out for. Yeah, there wasn't a lot more on the agenda. Um, a few um, interpretation issues in, in IFRIC um, updates, so it was a bit of a chance for the board to um, sit and discuss the decisions that the Interpretations Committee um, looked at over the last uh, couple of months. Um, th- what's coming up is fairly busy time. Next week we have the IFRS Advisory Council is meeting for two days here in London. Um, after that, two of our special advisory groups are meeting. One's the Global Preparer Group and the other is the Capital Markets Advisory Committee, and they're both meeting here jointly this time uh, in London, and, and we, that's broadcast and is public. Um, it's a great chance to have both preparer perspective and the user-investor perspective together, because they often um, they provide interesting discussions. Um, as Steve mentioned, the Insurance Working Group is the beginning of the following week, uh, and we also have a conference in Frankfurt, um, IFRS conference, so it's a busy couple of weeks. Okay, um, Steve, Alan, Sue, thank you for your time. Uh, That just leads me to to give the health warning that these are the personal views of the presenters and may or may not necessarily represent those of the IASB. The official summary of the board meeting is provided by IASB Update, which is available to download from the IASB website. Thank you.